Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to Girl on Fire podcast on the Believe Network, New York's number one podcast network for personal growth. This is your host, Kirsten Franklin. Today we have with us the founder and CEO of Playout Apparel. It's an omnichannel, gender equal streetwear and underwear brand. She graduated from the Founder Institute and is proud to be an FI select portfolio company, which means she's in the top 2% of their companies. And as an outgoing, unapologetically queer startup founder, she strives to be a leading voice in and for the LGBTQ plus community. Her entrepreneurial spirit and unique personal style give her an outsider's advantage in the world of fashion and direct-to-consumer startup ecosystem. So welcome to the show, Abby Sugar. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Kirsten. I love it. I love it. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited to actually have you because, you know, so few chances do we get to have somebody from the rainbow come on, but really talk about, you know, not only that, but being a female founder. And why don't we start by just having you tell us a little bit about your company, Play Out Apparel. Yeah, awesome. Definitely, you know, the double layer of I identify as a female founder. I'm also a member of the LGBTQ plus movement. I always say sort of like I'm an unapologetically queer female startup founder. And that's part of my identity. So it's it's an important aspect for me to talk about. And what I'm building with Play Out is really close to my heart, right? And so we are a social impact company. As you said in the introduction, um, Playout is a gender equal omnichannel streetwear and underwear brand. And what that means for, for us is number one, we do not have men's or women's sections of our website. So it's all about shop your style, not your gender. I like to say that people are different sizes. So if you are shopping an extra small or a medium or a 3X or a 5X, it's the same garment, right? It's just what size do you need to wear? We are inclusive in our sizing and we're also inclusive in our shape. So do you need a pouch front or a flat front? There's no men's or women's sections, but everything is available equally across prints and colors. And, you know, we could talk even more about what fashion means or what self-expression means because I founded the company specifically being unable to find gender expression affirming underwear And I think that everyone deserves to feel comfortable, deserves to feel good in the very first thing that you put on in the morning. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting. It's so funny. Okay. So I never thought about underwear, Um, but recently I I have to tell you, I think I was watching like Netflix or something and there was a TV show where, you know, one of the little girls just happened to be wearing boys underwear and she jumps off this play equipment thing and everybody starts making fun of her. And I never even thought about that. I was like, and who cares? Like she had older brothers. Maybe I didn't even know what the hell it was. Like she just had it and she was just wearing it and it was more comfortable. And yeah. she was like a little kid. And I'm like, who gives a shit, right? So but I never thought of that, right? Yeah. But it's also like those types of experiences that then impact you as you get older, right? So for me, it's all about you, you need to, for yourself with whatever you're putting on and it starts with underwear, but we did expand into streetwear because 
it's about how you move through the world. So if you are uncomfortable with the clothes that you're wearing in a job interview, it affects your self-confidence. And you might be like 500% overqualified for the job, but you're not able to express that or you're not able to share that with the interviewer because you're fidgeting with your clothes, because you're not comfortable with who you are, what you're wearing. So it's really important to us. And we get customer service emails all the time that like literally once a week, or we get direct messages on social media that are like, thank you so much for creating this, for creating this clothing, for creating this space in our social media marketing, on our website, the diversity of bodies, sizes, gender expressions, celebration of, of who people are. Now, did you yourself have a particular moment that brought you to this place? Like, was there like, is there a specific backstory, like something that happened to you that you could share with us? Well, so the very beginning germination of it was really from like many years ago. And, and, you know, the thing about starting a business is that it's, it's a process you need to, to really make it's it's a big risk. You need to make a decision on what you're doing. I always say that starting a business is easy. Like you file some papers, right? Running a business, getting revenue, getting sales, making it successful is is really hard. It's your life's work, right? So so you always have to to think about that. Um, but the initial idea, which I then educated myself on, did market research you know, looked into R&D and type of thing really came from an ex of mine who wanted to wear underwear that they were comfortable in mm-hmm. um, and that they felt, you know, was a true gender expression for them and were buying one brand from Europe. This was a few years ago. And I was like, they were, ex- it was so expensive to ship. And I was like, this has to exist in the US, right? There has to be some local brands doing this. And I just couldn't find it. Um, luckily, I think in the past few years, you know, if you look all the way back to 2013, for example, Victoria's Secret commanded over 30% of the lingerie apparel market. And now that has gone down to approximately at like 23, 24%. They've lost a lot of market share. Because we're not even that good. I'm one of those girls, right? I'm totally about all the lingerie. And it's just like, every time people wear Victoria's Secret, I'm like, yeah, it's so commercial and easily accessible, yeah. but it's just like, quality sucks. It's yeah, the quality is so, <laughs> so bad. And so it really came from this, why doesn't this exist? Well, we need to make it exist, yeah. right? Something that fits well, is flattering, is affordable, um, and doesn't make any sort of like, doesn't dictate how you're supposed to wear it or what you're supposed to look like. And that I think approach in fashion was, was sort of so revolutionary that even though our original inspiration was assigned female at birth individuals, everyone wanted to wear this. Everyone wanted to be celebrated in what they were wearing. So we did start designing pouch front versions, assigned male at birth or whatever style you want to wear. This is gender equal. This is available for everyone you know, really about inclusivity and self-expression. Awesome. So now you keep using this term gender equal. Tell me a little bit about about how that's defined. And is that different than say gender neutrality, right? Yeah. Great question. So I kind of, I, you know, my team and I gender neutral, when you say something is neutral, you're, you're erasing any sort of differentiators or 
expressions, right? And generally when something is, is considered to be neutral, it goes back to what is considered the default, right? And I think that in society, at least in the U.S., the default is usually masculine. Yeah. So when you're saying that you're neutralizing something, you're actually erasing either spectrum of femininity or masculinity, right? And so when we say gender equal, you know, to have a true change of a true like shift in the gender binary to make sure that everything is equal, you are able to express yourself authentically. That doesn't mean that you do a a 180 and you just replace one with the other and say to be gender neutral is, is to have masculinized baggy shapes that erase gender, right? Gender exists. It's not a terrible thing. And we want to celebrate and support anyone in whatever expression they want to have. So that's what I mean by gender equal. I love it. I love it. Amazing. Now tell me, first of all, as a founder, and you know, you let us in on a little bit about your background as well, but as a founder, you know, not from the fashion industry, how was it for you? How, what were the, some of the difficulties you might've faced with regards to funding, with regards to other aspects of rolling out, you know, play out to the public? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's two aspects in which I, I guess was sort of an outsider. Right. And I think that one of them is the fashion industry, but that is a little bit separate from being what's considered a startup and going out and seeking funding or fundraising as a startup. So in case people aren't familiar with like the terms, like what is a enterprise corporation? What is a startup? And what is like a smaller, medium-sized business? The difference between a startup, for example, and a smaller, medium-sized business, an enterprise obviously is a corporation, um, but the difference between a startup and a smaller, medium-sized business being that a startup is a company that's being built to scale, right? To take on venture money or to take on investor money and grow to, you know, 10 or 20 X their size and in, in the best world possible, because it is scalable in that way. Whereas a smaller, medium-sized business can be a lifestyle business. It may be something that's more of like a service oriented business where it's not really scalable because the person needs to be providing that service. So when we're talking about being a fashion startup, that also is a little bit different than being like a, fashion design entrepreneur, right? Right. So there's two different sort of aspects that we're looking at here in terms of how do you get into fashion as an outsider, right? Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? (laughs) Okay, good. Because I have a terrible, I have a terrible mouth. So my life motto, my life motto is fucking figure it out. Love it. Um, And so when this was something that I truly personally saw a need, and I always say that I was just crazy enough um, to decide to, to launch a startup you know, how do you start any business, but how, especially do you start a business that you don't have any background or experience in? And I would consider myself a lifelong learner. So what I did was I bought a bunch of business books. I bought a bunch of books about being a fashion entrepreneur specifically. And then I, I took classes. What are the resources that you have where you are? I live in New York City. That fashion resource, of course, is going to be FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I'm a big proponent. Like everyone I talk to that has taken classes there or that has graduated from their continuing education or for a degree 
like the level of education because the people that are teaching are professionals in the industry is incredible. So, you know, I set out to take those classes. And and the other thing that I think serves me in in the second part of this, which is being a start a scalable startup fundraising is making connections with people and reaching out to my own network to learn. So, you know, when I was first embarking on this, one of my friends dated someone who is a costumier on Broadway, right? And so, yeah, so I was like, can I just talk to her about how do you do this, right? So I did, and and she connected me with, in New York, the Save the Garment District nonprofit people. So then I got to like, learn from them. Um, and in addition to that, I sent an email out to a bunch of friends, you know, dare I come out and say, I also have been to Burning Man. So a lot of burners, <laughs> it's not my identity, right? It's a part of who I am. Wait, we haven't met in New York city yet. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but a lot of burners make their own costumes. They're, you know, very into this. And so I sent an email out and said, can anyone, does anyone want to walk around the garment district with me and like talk to me about fabric and whatever? So it's about reaching out to your network. And I think that if we then look at building a network for fundraising, I think that's very important for female founders or other underrepresented founders. And I think that the internet, certain social social media connecting groups, whether that's on Twitter. And I will say that I'm personally just absolutely terrible at social media. I don't enjoy it very much, but I know a lot of people, especially people that, you know, are not white, cisgendered, straight men, you know, have made some real connections on Twitter, have gotten investment on Twitter. And I think that something really positive with, with the internet is the democratization of access to people, to building your network that way, as opposed to historically, these networks were closed off to underrepresented groups because, you know, Ivy Leagues, graduate schools, Silicon Valley, and if you didn't have an intro to that, it's still very difficult, you know, like billions of dollars in VC funding is put to work every year. And 2.3% 2.3% of that went to female founders in 2020, which was down. So we're already talking and it was down last year, even lower than 2019, which is just shocking. So it is really difficult. And, you know, I, I relate to you, Kirsten, because I feel like we're both just people that get it done, fucking figure it out, you know? Um, and so I never walk into anything being like, oh, I already expect this to be hard. But having been on this process, um, actively raising money, it's really hard. It's really hard in general, but it's really hard as a female founder. Yeah. And just to, just to mention, we actually had Breen Sullivan from Fourth Floor on here, and we were talking about those stats, those devastatingly odd statistics. And what's really interesting is that even though there was an outflow of women executives We've actually hit finally, at least numerically speaking, pretty much equality at that CEO level for top companies. Now we're not still top 50, you know, we're not still 50-50 on the Fortune 500s, right? Still have a ways to go. But it's interesting how even with all of these women groups, investor groups getting together, we're somehow not hitting this mark. It's it's incredible. And we're talking about VC level too. So it's, you know, traditionally still 
and I'm so not bashing old white dudes, <laughs> but it still happens to be men between the ages of 55 to 70 yeah. who happen to be white males with double IV education. That's just, yeah. that's just yeah. fact, right? I can't change that, right? Well, I think that, I think that it's unfortunately just the reality is it's really hard to turn a ship. Right. So even though we're seeing this first phase of female executives, women, you know, Fortune 500, we're trying to get their board seats, et cetera. It has to then has to create this new system, this circular effect. Right. And we're not there yet. One thing that gives me a lot of hope is honestly, Gen Z. So with these digitally native people, right, and they're very young. I mean, the oldest Gen Zs are just turning 25, 26 right now, right? But even in that now, they've been in the workforce for two or three years, and they're creating new systems, right? So there's a Slack group, there's a website, there's a group of younger venture capitalists called Gen Z VCs that this VC at... Lara Hippo, Megan Loist launched. And it's so cool, right? So it's like that type of connection and community, building communities. I mean, that's the buzzword these days, right? If you're building anything, it needs to have a community behind it. But it gives me a lot of optimism. Now, it takes time. Sometimes I want things to move faster, right? Like I need investors now. (laughs) Right, right. But but it gives me a lot of hope. And and I would like to know, you know, from idea to actual inception, incorporation, design ideas, et cetera, to present on this journey for funding, how long has it been? Well, so on the funding journey, I've only been raising for, I'm counting on my fingers how many months, like probably. <laughs> and also time is not real. We've been living in a pandemic. So add that layer onto fundraising, right? But it's July. So I've I've been actively raising for five months. Before, okay, before that's, that's like saying I'm long. actively raising, I took two months and was like building, identifying a values aligned investors building lists, right? Reaching out to my network, um, maybe other founders, people that aren't direct investors to get to practice my pitch, to get feedback on that. And then, and and also there's, there's a, a period of time, I think, to see what the market is doing. And by the market, I mean, of course, the investing market, but you have a lot of companies. There's there's companies, startups at different stages than you're at. There's startups in in tons of different industries. And what I always like to say, you know, I don't know, and and tell me if this would be helpful for for your listeners or not. You know, the distinction between angel investors and VCs. My idea, I'd like a quick thing because I'm not sure that everyone knows. In fact, I'm working with a startup right now, and it's a brick and mortar. And it was interesting that. When we had that conversation, they weren't really, they knew that there was investors. And here's some, here's a, a CEO who's built things before. Mm-hmm. So never, never with an eye towards IPOing as as maybe this these two, you know, are doing right now. But it was interesting. So I, I don't think people actually know the difference. So why don't you give us a super quick blurb on, on, on those major differences there? 
Yeah. So there's, you know, there's always conversation around how do you find funding to get started? Right. And of course, there's traditional debt financing, which would be something like a business credit card or a bank loan. But for especially tech startups, and if you're trying to build something on a vision and you don't have revenue yet, no bank is going to give you a loan. Right. So set that one aside. And then you go to private investors and you're looking at angel investors or VCs. And angel investors are privately wealthy individuals. The SEC has requirements for minimum assets and income. So you have to make sure that that person that wants to give you an angel check is qualified because then it's messy if not. But in that, you know, angels are doing their own investing. They're doing their own due diligence. They're investing their own money. And the difference between that and a VC is a venture capitalist has a fund that they have raised on a specific industry in a specific thesis for a specific stage. So by stage, I mean pre-seed, very early idea stage of a company, of a startup, or, you know, when people say that they've gone out and they're raising a seed or they're raising a series A or a series B, those are more established startups that have reached a certain level of revenue or traction. So a fund can decide what level they are investing in. And then the venture capitalists have their own limited partner investors who those are the individuals, but they're not spending the time as an angel is to do the research and the due diligence and the deal flow. They want to say to the VC, I believe in your thesis. I trust your judgment. I'm investing in you so that you're responsible for spending the time sourcing deals, et cetera. So the fact of the matter is when you are pitching VCs or when you're getting ready to go out and raise money, you need to identify that that VC is in your stage and in your industry because it doesn't do me any good to be pitching a, you know, 76 capital fund for sports. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Or some like, you know, rocket tech fund, right? So space AI fund, because they're not going to invest in me. But so, you know, you need, there's a lot of work that, that needs to go into it. And so actually when communicating with investors, you know, regardless of VC or, or angel investors, um, accredited investors, uh, what do you think the most important thing is to prioritize about your, you know, your company? I think that, Traction is very important, but you're going to get different depending on the stage that you're in, right? If you're just pitching an idea, then traction is not necessarily revenue. Traction could be, I have an idea. I sent a survey out to a thousand people. People were so excited about this idea that I got a thousand responses, which is huge because there's a huge attrition, right? right? So that shows something, right? And then the traction is that I was able to show 500 signups to my email list. And that's growing over and over, even though the product isn't even built yet. So that's one way to show, to show traction. But the other thing is if you're building something, let's say that is a rocket, for example, your team needs to be amazing. Right. And so a way to present yourself to investors with an amazing team is that you lead team first. So I think that it depends on what you're building and who you are, what those connection points are. And you also want to connect with with the investor on what they're looking for, right? Right. Right. It's not a one-way street at all. Exactly. So here you are. You have Play Out Apparel, by the way, got recently mentioned in the New York Times, which is awesome. We're going to have that link below so people can 
can read about that. But what sort of, what do you think has been your biggest challenge in getting PR and getting publicity and getting that out there? And, and what would be the purpose, actually? I mean, obviously, the purpose of a company and, and getting your brand out there. So you have happy end users, buyers, right? But when it comes to this investing aspect, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. t- talk to me a little bit about how that's been going, what the biggest challenges have been, and what was the sort of intended goal and has it kind of been right? Yeah. I mean, I think that when you do anything, when you do paid advertising, when you're able to get PR for your company, it can serve multiple purposes. You can do it for different reasons. And I was recently reading an article or a newsletter about the shift in paid digital advertising because of the new privacy laws, because of the limited access to data. Like this is a sea change that's happening. And so this article itself was advocating more traditional PR routes, right? Like magazine articles in publications that are related to your industry, larger, you know, articles that you're able to get because you have something important to say in, you know, broader publications such as the New York Times. For me, you know, that article led to obviously more sales. And for something like that, that's amazing. And then the article exists now. So people are able, if they're searching for this topic, such as gender equal apparel, such as LGBTQ plus owned startups, they're going to come across this article. So it continues in that way, as opposed to sometimes I think like a direct digital ad spend on a platform is just a campaign, right? right. And then you're directing that to who it gets shown to. Um, and then right. in terms of, of talking to investors, I think that it does add, even though my team and I and our competitors in this landscape know this is a new market, emerging market that we're building you know, gender neutral, gender equal fashion is the future of mainstream fashion, right? 56% of Gen Z shops outside of their assigned gender. So what we call queer fashion or gender equal fashion now is really just fashion, right? These kids don't want to be told what box to be put in, how they have to shop, what clothes, like literally, and it's not even clothes. It's just a product, right? Why are there men's and women's razors? I was talking to a friend about this the other day. right? Like women don't need pink razors. They're razors. Um, and so it's, well, I mean, you have to make them pink or else how would you charge us more for them? Well, exactly. Yes, precisely. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, exactly. But so even though, you know, being inside of the system, we know that this is a big sea change and this is an important topic. And this is what the younger kids are talking about. And this is the future. Somebody that hasn't been some investors that haven't personally experienced this, they have no idea this is going on, right? Right. And so I think that having a a major publication like the New York Times profile us, it has, you know, gotten people to respond to some emails for sure, for sure. But that being said, you know, a couple of two or three times, one of the most gratifying things that has happened is speaking with this group as, as, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times before, the prevailing majority of white, straight, middle-aged investors, even going in and speaking to them, a couple people, two or three times have said, my daughter is trans. What you're doing is really important. I love it. And that investor is not my target customer, right? right? 
but they, they see that, you know, we're doing something huge and there's a big change coming. Um, someone, another investor said to me, same demographic. And he said to me, you know, my two teenagers are non-binary. I get it. Right. Yeah. And it makes me feel, it just keeps me going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, you were saying like, it's hard, right? It is, it is hard. And that's why when people talk about the passion being behind it, can anyone build a successful quote unquote monetary number numbers wise business without having passion? Of course. But that also makes your every day when every little tiny bump comes smacking the face so much harder when, when you love it and you're like, it has to be done. Like, like it has, like somebody has to make this, right? Yeah. Like somebody has, it just makes those hits. They're still hits, but you, you, you're able to be resilient right? It's that resilience to get back up that, that matters. Right. So, so awesome. I always, exactly that point, you know, I always say that money can't be the motivator. It's too hard. It's too exhausting, right? Like that's not enough. (laughs) You have to believe in what you're building. And here's the thing. I mean, just sitting where I, I sit and having worked with over a thousand individuals and high level executives who money is the motivator. Here's, here's what I say to that. You leverage whatever you need to, to get past a certain point, but know that whatever you're leveraging, when it comes from the negative, when it's because you have to show yeah. how bad you're worth it, when it's because you have to make more money than your poor neighborhood, when you have to do all these things, there's a point in which it's no longer enough and it cannot fulfill you. And that's when you're going to have this, you know, life change. You're either going to go downhill yes. and go down the shitter and just party and be an alcoholic or something's going to happen, or... You're going to start doing a self-reflection, introspection, and you're going to change as a human. And it's just an interesting time and there's no right or wrong time. But, you know, I mean, if you could do it sooner, why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In business and life, everyone's on their own trajectory and their own journey for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I mean, you might get to that number, but by the time you get there, you're not happy, dude. <laughs> you're not okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See it all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, so what is your process? Um, just, we love to talk about mindset and processes for overcoming challenges. So what's your personal process when you face a challenge? How do you overcome that? Love this question. I'm really good at giving other people advice and telling people what I do. And a lot of the time, very terrible at taking my own advice. I will preface with that, you know, and it's interesting because sometimes I think about that question myself when things are really, really hard. And it's just like, how do I get up in the morning and just keep going? And especially with fundraising, it's a lot, it's a lot of rejection. You know, it's just somebody compared it to, and I don't think they're wrong, being an actor and going out for audition after audition after audition and not getting the part, right? So I sometimes, I have really, my team is amazing and I have really supportive friends that give me a reality check, right? Like I definitely think that I'm a perfectionist and I'm very impatient. So if I'm working at 110% to accomplish something and it doesn't immediately show traction or, you know, pay off, it just needs time. Like if I met someone on Thursday, sent them an email on Friday and it's Monday morning and they haven't emailed me back yet, that's okay. Like I have to let things work. (laughs) And so I have some friends that remind me of that. And my co-founder as well reminds me of that. So I think, you know, how do you overcome things is, is definitely use your support system. Right. 
And the second one that I'm not very good at listening to myself, but I try and remind myself to do is be kind to yourself. Right. So if it's like, sometimes it's like, just get up, answer 10 emails, like maybe set two or three, even one or two significant goals to get done. It could just be one, you know, one could be I'm not feeling good today, mental health wise or whatever, but I'm going to spend an hour prepping for my podcast with Kirsten and I'm going to spend an hour recording that. And I accomplished a thing today. Right. And or sometimes it's just like, sit down and answer five emails. And once you start that you're working. So then it's like two hours pass and you've answered 15 or 20 emails at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, so practicing kindness towards yourself is, is one of, and, and setting reasonable goals when you feel overwhelmed, just get one thing done. I find is a helpful mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I, I laughed the other day. I had one of those days where just, you know, woke up, bad dream, woke up, just shit day. So I just literally went right back to sleep. I like, I did a little bit of work because I had some meetings in the morning and then I was like, no, I'm going to go back to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly happy. And I was like, that works. I was just like, hit that reset button, you know? Yeah, totally. Whatever works. All right. Awesome. I have one final question for you. And that is, have you ever engaged with coaches in the past? And what do you you know, like, are you using them now? And and what do you, what have you found, uh, you know, coming from them? Yeah. So I have never formally worked with someone like an executive coach, right. Or a life coach, but I, I once a week still do, um, you know, in therapy work with a psychiatrist and sometimes, you know, that I feel like sometimes that session is too work centered. Whereas I want it to, you know, talk more about where I am in my personal life and whatever, and that I could use the, the use of hiring a coach to be able to keep my therapy as therapy and my like executive coaching. Right. Um, but I haven't reached that point yet, but I have thought about it a lot. So I definitely think um, having that external feedback and structure is really important. I'm definitely a proponent. Yeah. 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 I work with coaches. I am a coach. I work with I'm right here for you, baby. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> All right. Awesome. What would be one final thing that you would love to leave our listeners with? I mean, I think fucking figure it out. Yes. <laughs> always upgrade your problems. So people are always like, oh my God, I've hit this wall and blah, blah. I'm like, yes, but is it a bigger problem than your previous problem? Because that means that you've grown and made progress. Mm-hmm. So always upgrade your problems I like it. And, and be kind to yourself. I love it. I love it. Well, you heard it here. Thank you so much, Abby. We have Abby Sugar. We will put her details in the description, including that article in the New York Times. And of course, if there are any VC funders out there listening, be sure. Or angel investors. Oh, oh. angel investors. Accredited angel investors. (laughs) She's like, we'll take uncredited at this point too. We'll just take your money. No, just kidding. (laughs) Awesome. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Abby. Thank you so much for your time with us today. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Love chatting. Talk to you soon. So that is it for this week. Thank you for joining me. And I hope that you enjoyed today's show. If so, don't forget to rate it. If you guys have a pressing question, feel free to tweet me at CS Thrive uh, or on Instagram at Thrive Tribe 
3.14159. Again, I know that's a weird one. It's just pi. So it's three, it's thrive underscore tribe underscore 3.14159. Or of course you can join me in Facebook at my free group, which is Thrive Tribe Global. If you just search groups and you enter in Thrive Tribe Global, you should see us there um, and you can join it for free. Uh, I answer your questions in there, but if you guys send me a question through there, I will be sure to answer it here on this podcast. And as always, if you're ever interested in advertising on the show, please contact the Believe Network at Believe, B-L-E-A-V, at Believe.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.